0: Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast. My name is Nathan Brush, your host, and this is a show all about learning from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. For this week's episode, I'm delighted to be handing over the reins to my colleague Isabel from the Journey Further book club because the audio here is actually lifted from a special event Isabel hosted with author and professor Cal Newport a couple of weeks ago. So hello, Isabel. How was it speaking with Cal?
1: Hello. So we're big fans of Cal Newport Journey further.
0: So I think it's fair to say I was quite excited for this one. Uh, it was a fantastic event. And as you know, on the podcast, the question we start every single episode with is what's the wrong you want to write? So I guess for people who might not already be familiar with Cal's work, can you give us a little bit of insight as to what to expect?
1: Yeah, so Carl's books center around examining the way that digital tech and culture intersect. Um, And in 2016, he published the international bestseller, deep work, um, which focus specifically on concentration and productivity at a personal level. So the wrong he sets out to write with this new book, a world without email builds upon that, but specifically looks at the constant back and forth of communication that we have in our current workflows and how detrimental that is to actually getting real work done. So In the book, A World Without Email, he sets out to tackle this crisis by explaining how we got here, why email is making us miserable, and then he presents a framework to help us all collectively break out of this constant back and forth. So I started my conversation with Cal by asking him how he felt about having this book finally out in the world after five years of writing it, and here's what he had to say.
2: Well, it's almost surreal I mean, I've been with this topic for so long. I started working on this book almost immediately after publishing Deep Work. So back in 2016, I put it on hold temporarily to write and publish Digital Minimalism in 2019 and then came back to it because I felt as if the issues in Digital Minimalism were really timely. They had to do with uh, our attitude changing about our phones and social media, et cetera. It seemed of the moment, whereas the ideas I was researching for this book on email seemed so different than the way people were talking about it and so new that I wasn't worried that I was going to get scooped. So after five years of thinking and writing about it, I find it almost surreal to actually hear people out there in the real world using these terms that I've been internally bandying about for quite a long time now.
1: And and as you say, you wrote A World Without Email as a kind of follow-up and a continuation of the work that you did in Deep Work. So what question did you set out to investigate with A World Without Email?
2: So in Deep Work I was talking about the value of focus and saying we underestimate it almost anything that really matters in the world of cognitive work is going to come out of sustained concentration so we should really respect it we should train it we should protect it we should cultivate it one of the big pieces of feedback that came out of that book being published was you know Cal you don't understand how hard it is to do that you don't understand the degree of the pressures on attention fragmentation the degree to which it's almost impossible not to be constantly checking channels, inboxes, Slack teams, whatever it is that you use, and the psychological toll that's being played, even when you're not checking them. And that was so striking to me. I thought someone should ask and answer the question, why do we work this way? I touched on it briefly in deep work, but I was pretty dismissive. I was like, yeah, this is tech that's kind of distracting us. That's why, you know, that's why we're, we don't think about deep work, but we should think about it more. But I wanted to get to the bottom of it. I mean, if this is, if it's causing such a problem why do we do it you know what what what, what how did our world work shape in destruction and uh, what i uncovered was much bigger than i ever expected which is why it took me uh, years to pull all these threads together
1: in a world without email you describe knowledge workers as currently adhering to a workflow which centers around this ongoing unstructured and unscheduled messaging that is email and you define that as a hyperactive hive mind so on first glance a hyperactive hive mind might not seem like such a bad thing. Um you know we've got access to each other all of the time um and there's there's room for constant collaboration. So why is our current way of structuring knowledge work so ineffective and making us so miserable?
2: Yeah, this is the key question and and just to give the context around this question, the story I tell in the book is that we see email spread quite rapidly in the first half of the 1990s uh, and it spreads for good reason it was a better solution for certain problems that were currently being solved by fax machines and voicemails and memos, right? Email was a better replacement for those existing modes of communication. So it spread very fast. It went from a niche tool to a half billion dollar a year industry in about four or five years because it was very effective at that. In its wake, so as it moved through offices, we got this new style of collaboration, which I argue in my book is largely emergent. People didn't actually sit down and say, let's work this way. It just kind of happened once the tool had arrived. And this is what we call the hyperactive hive mind workflow. So, the hyperactive hive mind workflow, as you alluded, is where the primary method by which you collaborate is with unscheduled back and forth digital messages. We'll just figure things out on the fly with back and forth messages. As you note, it's not surprising that this emerged because it's very natural. I mean, this is how I would naturally collaborate with you if we were just in the same room working on something, it would be unscheduled back and forth interaction, right? Just like, hey, did you see that? Can you hand me the hammer? What's going on over there? That's how humans naturally uh, collaborate. It's also flexible, it's easy, and it's convenient. So email allowed us to use this natural, flexible, convenient way of collaborating for all of our business collaborations. What's the problem? We have too many of them. So, it's not just two of us in a room working on one thing. It's 25 colleagues, six vendors, and seven clients, all of which have separate back and forth, unscheduled digital message conversations going back and forth asynchronously. That creates such a pressure in your inbox that you have to end up checking that inbox almost constantly. And you can't solve this problem by saying, I'll batch my inbox checks, I'll wait to check my inbox till the end of the day, because each one of these conversations is like a digital ping pong game going on. And every time that ball comes across the net, you have to hit it back pretty soon or the whole interaction is going to take too long. So the hyperactive hive mind demands that not only that we check these inboxes, but we check them all the time because we have to keep up with all this back and forth, asynchronous digital collaboration that's going on. All right, that finally brings us to the problem. So again, okay, maybe we have to check inboxes all the time, whatever, it's flexible, it's convenient, it's natural. Each one of those inbox checks creates a context shift. We have to take our attention, neurologically speaking, from whatever it was we were working on, and shift it over to the context of the emails. When we're checking that email to see, you know, did I get that message from Isabel about uh, when we're going to meet? Because I have to get back to her real quick. That completely changes our cognitive context. So we, we initiate a complex neurochemical reaction of trying to inhibit some neural networks and uh, amplify other networks to shift over to this new context. But we're just doing a quick check. So then before that can finish, we rip our attention back to the primary thing we were doing and basically slam the brakes on that process. This creates a cognitive catastrophe. Uh, Our ability to think clearly plummets. We feel a mental fatigue. That's why we feel mentally exhausted by the time we get to the afternoon and it makes us anxious. So it's a long answer, but it gets to this final point, which is critical for understanding our current problem. The hyperactive hive mind means you have to constantly check these inboxes, constantly checking the inboxes, is disastrous for our brain.
1: Hiya, it's Isabel here. If I can grab your attention for just 15 seconds, I'd love to invite you to join the Journey Further book club. We're a free digital resource that is designed to help marketers, CEOs, founders, and all around ambitious people to reach their next step. As a part of the community, you'll get to hear from authors like Cal and Seth Godin live, get bite-sized insights from the best business and marketing books, and join leading industry conversations. To join the community, visit journeyfurther.com forward slash book dash club or visit the link in our show notes. Back to the conversation with Cal. So in the book, you share an anecdote about a time that you went hiking with a friend of yours who was very quick to list reasons why frequent email provides more benefit for them than harm uh, for someone in a managerial and communicative role. Um, And I think this is a scenario that can apply to, to many people who are in our audience here as marketers and product managers. So I would like to know what you would like to say to knowledge workers who don't feel like they can step out of the constant communication channels that currently define their job roles.
2: Well, so this is why we've had such a hard time making progress on the sense of overload, is that if you just look at stepping away, well, what if I just didn't do email or I didn't check email or I didn't check email that often? The immediate conclusion is this would be a disaster because if the hyperactive hive mind is how you actually collaborate, this is the implicit agreement within your organization, then the more time you're away from your email, the worse things get. It causes real trouble. That's why we can't just solve this with personal habits. It's also why when you say, oh, we should not have email, people say this is impossible. What they really mean is If the hyperactive hive mind is the only way we collaborate, then to not be using email means our business would stop. And they're right. And I think understanding, therefore, that the issue is the underlying workflow, the underlying decision about how we collaborate, how we identify tasks, how we assign a review task, how we get the information to each other that we need to actually execute the task. As long as we implicitly say the answer to all that is the hyperactive hive mind, there's very little we can do. And that's why you get such a resistance to try to do change because people are rationally, just like my friend did in Rock Creek Park there, he's a management consultant that runs a a large team. The idea of stepping away from email without changing the underlying workflow would be disastrous. And so I think it's important to recognize if we're gonna make progress here, we have to actually look under the inbox and say, how are we actually collaborating? How are we putting assigning tasks? How are we moving information around? And if we don't have a good answer, that's our problem because we're going to default to just let's rock and roll in Slack. Let's rock and roll in email. So people are absolutely right to say, well, I can't just stop using email. That's right. If you use the hyperactive hive mind, you've got to use email. The question is, why are we using the hive mind?
1: And that leads me on to my next question. If if emails you know, continue to make us miserable across sectors and industries and job roles, why have we allowed this system to stick around for so long?
2: So this is where things get interesting. And this is an idea that I feel as if I broke uh, in this book. I also, before the book came out, I sort of broke this idea first in an article I wrote earlier in the fall for The New Yorker that was called The Rise and Fall of Getting Things Done, but it was an idea that I originally uncovered from the book. In knowledge work, which is different than other sectors of our economy, we have a real insistence on autonomy when it comes to how we get our work done. So in knowledge work, we say, look, it's up to you to figure out how you organize yourself, how you coordinate with other people your to-do list, you use a bullet journal, do you have like a Cal DuPort time block planner, are you a real getting things done, whatever. That's up to you how you organize your work. What we need to provide is management, is objectives. Uh, here's your objectives. Let's be really clear about it. It's up to you to figure out how to do your work. We have a real insistence on this. Now, historically speaking, we can actually trace this back to a single individual. It was the management theorist, Peter Drucker, who actually coined the term knowledge work in the 1950s, who all throughout his career, very influentially emphasized autonomy, 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 he was the one who uh, coined the term management by objectives, he's the one who said you got to leave the knowledge worker alone to figure out how they do their own work. In that environment in which we insist on productivity being entirely personal, what are we going to end up with? The lowest common denominator, the easiest, most flexible, most convenient thing, because again, more complex systems of producing stuff aren't going to arise emergently. You were never going to get henry ford's assembly line by just saying to the workers in the factory like look you do you we're going to tell you our objective is to produce five cars how you guys want to do it that's up to you no it took someone to actually sit there and think what's a better way to do it so in this uh atmosphere of autonomy we fall into the lowest common denominator i call this the autonomy trap which is the hyperactive hive mind because if i can't individually change the way everyone else works then it's might as well just try to get everyone's attention when i can let's keep it it's easy let's keep it flexible so Uh, I think we've stuck with this really bad way of working too long because of this historical artifact in the way that we actually think about how knowledge work should be structured.
1: Thank you. And and I really like the line where you say that you explain this by saying it's hard to fix a broken workflow when it's no one's job to make sure that it functions. Um, And it is that kind of well, it's not my responsibility. So with with that said, then, what's the answer? Should we all just set up an autoresponder on our email inboxes saying I don't work between nine and 10 on a Wednesday? And you know, I, I only answer your emails on a Friday at this time, like Tim Ferriss has done? Is that the answer?
2: Yeah, I mean, as you know, I, I talk about that in the book. Um, that was a, a failed experiment. So there was a period between 2007 and 2009 in which I think those autoresponders flourished. You don't see them as much anymore because uh, it turns out it actually just annoys people. Uh, to, to tell them the ways in which you're going to be inconveniencing them caused a lot of problems. Uh, no, it's not the solution. And uh, the reason it's not the solution is that it doesn't get to the underlying problem. So if the hyperactive hive mind is how we organize our work, That means these asynchronous back and forth conversations are important and timely responses is important because you're trying to make decisions. You're trying to coordinate. You're trying to move information around pretty quickly. You don't know when the messages are going to come in. So you have to just check all the time. If you remove yourself from that inbox and say, I'm not going to check email until three, it causes a lot of trouble. And this has been the fundamental problem with trying to fix overload without fixing the hive mind is that the hive mind actually requires overload The function. So, email autoresponders and batching didn't work. It just makes people more stressed. Also, it annoys people with the autoresponders. Company norms don't work. Uh, You can set as many norms as you want about response times, but actually, the hyperactive hive mind implicitly demands response times if you're actually going to get anything done. Email free Fridays were a disaster. That didn't work. Uh, trying to write better etiquette on subject lines and and message bodies. I mean, it can help a little bit. But ultimately, if this back and forth messaging is the main way you're making decisions and moving information and collaborating, there's no way getting around. You have to check that inbox all the time. Uh, So if we're going to get to a solution, it's not going to be something that you can apply to your email setup or to your personal productivity rules in terms of when you check or how often you check. You have to actually stop the pressure from getting into the inbox in the first place. And the only way to do that is to say, enough with the hyperactive hive mind. We in knowledge work have to do the same hard work that they did in other sectors and say, in this team, in this company, here are the actual processes that makes up our work, the things we come back to again and again that produce value. How do we wanna implement this one? How do we wanna implement this one? How do we implement this one? We actually have to start thinking it through. Do we wanna just grab each other on Slack? Well, you know that's a lot of back and forth messages. That's gonna cause a lot of contact shifts, maybe for this one what we need to do is have some sort of protocol. The draft of the report goes into the Dropbox by 12 on Tuesdays. All comments should be in there by 12 on Wednesdays. And then there is this 20 minute status meeting to work you know, whatever. And again, we don't have to get too detailed, but the point being is you go process by process. How do we actually wanna collaborate on this? What's our rules? What's our guides? What's our systems? All with an eye towards, how do we reduce unscheduled messages that require us to keep checking to respond to? So it's hard work, uh, but you know what? This has been the story of any sort of revolution in any sort of economic sector. Getting from the convenient to the effective requires a lot of work and experimentation. And we got to start that work and knowledge work.
1: And if it wasn't hard work, then we wouldn't be in this situation, right?
2: Yeah, uh, it's difficult because there's not a tool that can solve it. Oh, we'll just switch from email to X. Uh, There's not a simple rule that'll solve it. Part of the issue that's also held us back here is that we've tried to understand email overload. And I think this is very counterproductive through the lens of personal failings or personal even addiction, right? So you'll remember when the hyperactive hive mind really started picking up in the early 2000s, um, it intersected with the BlackBerry, right? And so now you could really get hyperactive because it was the first really mobile email. We we began introducing this phraseology of CrackBerry that tried to imply that what was going on here, the reason why at the time it was uh, typically like finance executives were on their phone all the time was because they had some sort of personal addiction the email. Where the real question was, why does this job require so much communication all the time, such that you need to be on your phone all the time communicating? So when we see this from a a perspective of personal failing, so you're addicted to checking your email, or engineers like to see tech from an instrumentalist perspective. So engineers will often say, if you're overloaded with a tool, that's because you were being suboptimal in your deployment of that tool. And so whenever there's something on Hacker News or one of these tech-located, uh, tech-centric places where they're writing about my work, it's usually a bunch of engineers talking about how they their Emacs macros are set up to optimize their use of these tools because they see everything instrumentally. It's just you're using the tool wrong. But the problem is the workflows. What mm-hmm. is the implicit agreement about how we actually collaborate in the, in, in the company? And if it's just rock and roll and communication channels, you can't get away from it.
1: So for members of companies here listening today, um, in the book, you share four principles that can help us to move away from these workflows that inhibit us. Um, can you share those four principles that will help, help companies to make modifications to their workflows that stick?
2: Well, so yeah, real briefly, we, we start with this attention capital principle, which says we actually have to think about the human brains in our organizations as our main capital resource And so the question is, what deployment of this resource is going to give the biggest return? And if you see it through these economic lenses, suddenly it becomes clear that, well, we'll just hook all the brains up to a chat channel, like a hyperactive hive mind workflow. You realize this is giving you a very low return on this capital. So it it just seems a little dehumanizing, but I'm trying to get through to C-suite types. that This is not about people being inconvenienced. It's not about people who don't like being distracted. This is not about uh the what is productive is somehow bad for the is somehow you know um what people want is non-productive it's no 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 this is just a really poor deployment of capital to try to take a bunch of human brains and say figure things out on the fly of slack it's like taking henry ford's factory equipment and building a terrible design for the car manufacturing where the tires are over here and the chassis are over here and the tools are on the roof you're deploying your capital bad you're not building cars very fast so that's the first idea we got this is about Uh, It's an economic question. Then comes the process principle, which gets to what I was saying before. All right, if you want to get past the hive mind, you actually have to say, here are the processes that we come back to again and again, and you have to engineer them. And you have to experiment. Everyone has to have a say in it. It's got to be flexible. You got to iterate. This is what the industrial sector did to have a massive growth during the 20th century is they figured out process re-engineering oh, we don't just do what seems natural. We got to figure out what's the best way to build a magneto. And it might not be what we think. And it might evolve over time. It's why Elon Musk factories don't look like the original Oldsmobile factories from the early 20th century. We got better. So we have to think in terms of what are our processes? How do we actually want to interact with each other to execute these processes? The main thing we're trying to avoid here from a cognitive standpoint is context shifting. So uh, unscheduled messages is a terrible way to do collaboration. That's what we're trying to optimize against. Uh, and then the the principles that follow get a little bit more into um, okay if we're going to over if we're going to overhaul these processes what should we look into so we get something like the protocol principle which talks about in some cases having set rules working out in advance here's the rules for how this happens seems like an inconvenience in the moment but if it means that going forward every time we execute this process we can do it with a lot less messages it's worth the overhead uh, and then the final principle is a specialization principle which says we do too much. And uh, the hive mind becomes sort of unavoidable when we put way too much work on each individual's plates. If you have too much on your plate, it's very difficult to have good structured processes for each of them. You're probably going to get more value out of employees if each person does less things, but does those things better. Trade the accessibility of the hive mind for accountability on less things is probably a better formula. So that's the, uh, the whirlwind tour through what it looks like conceptually speaking, to begin moving away from just this hive mind dominated workflow.
1: And and of course, throughout the kind of second section of the book, you give um, a number of examples and case studies of how different businesses and people have implemented each of those principles. So um, thank you for sharing that. I, I just wanted to come back to the point you mentioned for the process principle about how important it is for everyone who's involved in the workflow to be involved in that process. And I wondered if you could quickly tell us why it's important to involve all of those minds in in setting up those processes.
2: Well, I think the the right scale at which to do this process reengineering is the team, not higher. If you do it at a higher scale like a CEO or COO is saying, "Okay, here's all of our new way we're going to implement all of our processes." It's not flexible enough. There's not enough on the ground knowledge about how different things actually get done, and then you're going to fall into bureaucracy. And bureaucracy can be even worse. So I think the team is the right level. Okay, so now if we have a smaller group of people who work together consistently on the same objectives, how do we figure out these process definitions that are better than the hive mind? Uh, Everyone should be involved. Everyone should have a say. Everything should be very clearly recorded so we know what we're doing, and there should be regular review. This isn't working. How do we make it better? If everyone feels like they have a stake in what's going on, you're much more likely to have sustainable change. To the degree to which some of these things gets handed down, okay, I'm just going to figure out. Now you have to go do all this other stuff. You can't just email me. You have to instead do this and that. It's going to seem like you're adding an imposition into my life. And so I get into this in the book. To some degree, there's there's, there's a nice literature out there about system and process design in companies. If you're going to do it at the scale of a team, you're much more likely to succeed if everyone's involved.
1: And so you share, um, I think it's my favorite anecdote in the book about how you yourself manage a specific aspect of your workload using Trello. Um, And let's leave that anecdote in the book for people to find. But um, I wondered if you could take us through what a typical workday looks like for you. Um, And I do realize, of course, that we are at the back end of hopefully a a global pandemic. So things like homeschooling has also been on the cards. But yeah, I'd love to know how you organize and spend your time
2: yeah, it's a good question. And it you know it it varies depending on what season we're talking about and what's going on. so a a summer is going to look a summer day is going to look very different than a fall day. A day right now in the middle of a book tour is going to look very different than a, a day in the spring without a book tour. Um, but the a couple things I do, which I think is important, is because of the ideas in this book, I am very process-oriented. What are the different things I do professionally? What are the different processes involved in each of these things? How do I want to implement them? And I think a lot about that and I evolve those all the time. Um, So that's always there. And then I'm very careful about allocating my time. So I'm a big believer in, for example, what I call time block planning, which is where instead of just going through my day reactively, looking at email, looking at meetings, looking at what's due soon, At the beginning of the day, I make a plan. Uh, Here's the time available. Here's when I have meetings, here's when I have appointments. What do I wanna do with the time that remains? Okay, this half hour, I'm working on this, this two hour block, I'm working on that. I find that being very intentional about how I use my time. Let me make the best I can with the time I have, allows me to get a lot more done during my work day than if I just roll through the day, uh, seeing what comes up next. So so typically what you'll see in a Cal Newport day is there'll be a pretty clear time block plan about what's gonna happen. Some days have a lot of time for deep work, some days don't, um, but every day is clear. And then I have these processes in place to try to always try to minimize unscheduled back and forth messaging to the degree that it's possible.
1: So I, I have your time block planner, and I would uh, highly recommend it to anyone who is looking for a way to qu- quickly implement some of the some of the key aspects of time blocking. Um, and I wanted to ask you about, so I loved time blocking and I love it and the only thing that I find that it um, limits for me is the time that I spend thinking creatively Um, and that's been a real lesson for me to learn that actually it's important to block those bits of time in as well but I wondered if that's something that you've encountered or other people have spoken to you about because it's so easy to um, as you say kind of look at the day as blocks of time in which to do the tasks that you want to prioritize but what about the the thinking? What about the the times in between?
2: Yeah. you know, it's a topic I take for granted because of my, my professional jobs, right? So I, I have idiosyncratic careers. I'm a, as a professor, I'm a theoretician. I solve math proofs for a living. And then my other hat I wear is as a writer. So I make a living by thinking. So to me, it was just very natural, right? It was like, oh yeah, when I'm time blocking, a big part of what I'm doing with time blocking is identifying and protecting really long swaths of time so I can think. You know, because uh, to someone in my career's thinking is like what athletic training is. If you're like a professional footballer or something like that, like of course I'm going to do that. And time blocking allows me to do it. It allows me to find time for the other stuff to get it out of the way. Uh, it allows me to do the thinking with protection. So when you when you have a time block plan and you're in a block dedicated to thinking, you can do that thinking much less encumbered than if you don't time block and you just think I just got to go think because there's all this other stuff floating in the air that is not being scheduled or taken care of. And your mind is 30% thinking about that. Like, oh, I mean, aren't we late on this? And don't people need us? And and so uh, you get much more clarity if the block falls into a day that's planned. But your point's really well taken because I learned this after that planner came out hearing from my listeners and from my readers. Uh, It's not so natural for other people because most jobs are not so explicitly connected to your success is a function of hours of thought you know, most jobs aren't like that. So your point is really well taken that one of the things that you need to be figuring out when you time block is how much time for creative thinking, or deep thinking on hard problems do I want to do? There's a little metric tracking space on every day in the time block planner, I would suggest you have a plan, and you track it up there, right? Like I need to get five hours or 10 hours a week or whatever it is you think is optimal for your job, and then every day track with a little tally, how much that I actually get? So you have that pressure of knowing this is going to be recorded. Now you can start fighting for that time, fighting to make room for it, squeezing other things, taking other things off your plate, being more efficient with other things to make the time. And you're going to be in a much better spot. So I now appreciate a lot goes into, that's a mindset shift. Mm-hmm. This is something to be tracked and fought for and protected. I'm not taking for granted anymore that everyone else feels to feels so natural about it. So I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it.
1: Yeah, and, and that's a really interesting point. Um, I have to say, at, at risk of this turning into just a mentoring session for me, um, I did struggle to think of what my personal metrics were um, when I was writing in my time block planner. So, thinking about thinking time as a metric itself is really useful. So thank you. I'm now going to ask everybody, I'm going to give you I've got one more question for me to ask Cal. Um, so if you have a question for Cal, please do pop that in the comments because uh, we will then go to those afterwards. But Cal, um from me, I have to ask you the question that I love to ask all of our guests, all of our authors, which is if you could recommend just one book to the members of the Journey Further book club, what would it be and why?
2: A surprisingly effective productivity book that has nothing to do with productivity is uh, The Rise and Fall of Theodore Roosevelt, which also won the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize. It's a very well-written biography, Um, but if you read it, it gives you this interesting aspirational view of someone who saw raw focus and intellectual energy as the number one resource that he had access to and went to huge extremes to apply it. So it's just a really interesting, motivating book just to just to look at the way that, that Teddy Roosevelt um, would approach every moment of his day, like work very intensely on this, then turn to this and go very intensely on this, then turn to this and go very intensely on this and built an incredibly varied and successful and impactful and personally fulfilling life. Um, and so I, I found that to be one of the most important productivity books that no one ever thinks about as a productivity book. I mean, we're talking about someone here who would literally there'd be a story in there where there's a there's a period of time where he was out trying to run a ranch out in the American West in the 1800s, and there was a uh, cattle rustlers and they had you know stolen some cattle and they were trying to escape and they were coming after him in a boat in a nearly frozen river where if they tipped that you were going to die of hypothermia, and they were you know up ahead and they were Teddy Roosevelt and his band of, of ranch hands were trying to catch up, and Roosevelt realizes um, oh I got a little bit of time here till we catch up, and so he was reading by candlelight, a Matthew Arnold book under a blanket on this book as a way because it's like, Hey, here let me put some energy into this. So this is a guy who, you know, read a book a day while he was the president of the United States. Anyways, I like to recommend this one because it's off the beaten path as a productivity book, but you come away thinking, man, the human mind can do a lot. If we really just got after it a little bit and structuring all this energy.
1: Wow. Um, yeah, that certainly leaves a, a lot to be desired uh, reading a book a day when you when you have probably the most important job in the world. So thank you, Cal. Um, got a question from Katie who asks, what advice do you have for managing your inbox and how much time you spend on social media when your role is very reliant on being reactive on social news and activities?
2: Yeah. So, so if you're in a role that's going to have to be relatively responsive, I would say you'd probably want to have a process in place that For how and when you capture, organize, and respond to information uh, in a way that gives you as much, let's think of it as cognitive control as you can have. So it might be as easy, for example, or as hard as at the top of every hour or something like this for five minutes. You go into these inboxes, you go into the social channels, you bring out the stuff that needs response, you bring it out into a separate system. It might even be just sort of writing this down in a separate place where then you can then look at this, generate your responses and reply and then you're done until the next section happens, right? Uh, now, that might seem like a lot of overhead, but what you're really trying to do here is have some sort of structure on when you're taking an in inputs and some structure on how you maximally efficiently process those inputs to generate the reaction, and you know when that happens, and when that's not happening, you're doing something else. The thing to avoid is overlap, where I'm working on this, but also while working on this, I have to keep checking that to see if something comes through because it's those context shifts in the end, they're going to kill you though. Like I'm trying to write this, but I have to check this every five minutes. It's better to check this every 50 minutes and give it 15 minutes than it is to check it every five minutes and give it just 30 seconds. It's the switching back and forth of your attention that's going to really be killer. So you really want to get processes where if you're going to switch your attention to that. You're just doing that. And then when you're doing something else, you're just doing that something else.
1: Yeah, and I think the comments that you share at the start of the book and the stats you share on how often the average knowledge worker checks their email are so indicative of of how pervasive this is and how this context switching is, as we say, making making us miserable. Emily asks, any insight about how you get started during thinking time? How do you personally get through the cognitive cobwebs and get to max thinking productivity?
2: Well, it's a great question. And uh, Two things to keep in mind. One, uh, this cogniz- this context switching effect we're talking about matters for thinking time as well, because as I mentioned, part of the problem with quickly looking at email inboxes and then coming back is that it takes a long time to context shift. And so we start a context shift and we abort it. Keep that in mind that if you're switching over to thinking, it might take a while until your brain literally has the right networks amplified and the right networks inhibited for you to do maximum thinking on that topic. Now, how long does this take? It can take up to 15 minutes. So if you feel this cognitive cobwebs like you're talking about when you first start, let's say thinking hard about a new business strategy, uh, your brain's actually gear shifting. And so, you know, you give that some time. That's why people have this sense. It's very common when people are trying to do deep thinking, they'll, they'll typically say things like it was hard at first, and then I kind of got into the flow of it and was able to make, prog- make progress. What was really happening? You were switching your context from what you were doing before to this new thing. It just took a little while. And during that intermediate period, you felt like you weren't quite up to, up to speed. A side note of that is uh, it's incredibly damaging, therefore, that if during thinking periods, you do quick checks or interruptions, right? You're really going to set yourself back up the square one if you jump over on Slack for five minutes in the middle of a deep thinking period. You might induce another 10 to 15 minute cognitive cobweb clearing if you start that context shift and then come back. So really protect. Once you've gone through all the hard work of switching your context to the deep topic, really protect that concentration. Don't do context shifts at all if you can avoid it. The second thing I want to mention is a lot of people have success with rituals. If you develop a ritual around the start of a thinking session, two things happen. One, it basically just covers over the time where you're context shifting, so it's uh, useful in that way. But two, your mind can begin to associate that ritual with doing that type of deep thinking. And therefore, you can help sidestep Some of the cognitive obstacles we feel anytime we're trying to do anything that's going to be very energy intensive, our mind tends to put up obstacles to this unless there's actually a physical threat that is uh, inducing our action. And so a ritual can help you sidestep that. And a ritual could be something like, I go to a different space that's just for deep thinking, or I do a Darwin walk. So sort of inspired by how Darwin would kick off his deep work sessions at downhouse when he was working on the origin of species it's a walk through a set route that i do a set number of times and then when i'm done i start deep thinking this stuff is more than just aesthetics it's actually helping your brain say ah okay when we do this that means it's time to do thinking and you can uh, you can get rolling earlier as well so it's really important i'm glad you're asking about this thinking is hard and so we need to give ourselves as much help as we can
1: Thank you, I hope that answered your question, Emily. So Nathan in Leeds asks, looking back on, on the book, Deep Work Now, is there anything that through your own practice that you now feel to, to be untrue or to have changed in in the time since you wrote the book about your understanding, I guess, of deep work?
2: Yeah, so something I clarify, or we could say expand on in, in my new book, in World Without Email, that is very relevant to deep work is getting past just this notion of very long concentration. So I heard from like managers and I heard from people in support positions who said, well, obviously none of this is relevant for me because my job does not specifically require long sustained thought, right? I'm not writing computer code where I have to think about this algorithm for hours or I'm not solving a math proof. And so I really got into that in the new book and this would have been, I think, well-suited to have been in deep work in the first place where I said, okay, if you look at managerial jobs or support jobs, it might be the case that you don't need four hours to sustain thought, but the cost of context shifting is equally as bad, right? So it makes it hard to think clear if your context are jumbled. So what happens for managers, for example, and I talked about this in the book, is they're constantly concurrently managing fires that are coming in and out of Slack or email while also doing the other activities of management, making decisions, talking with their team to make sure they have what they want, uh, scheduling, strategy, all the other things managers, the leadership activities managers need to do, they're constantly also putting out fires. Where I make the argument, and I research to back this up, if managers are able to do one thing after another, they do each of those things better. Like, I'm talking to you, that's what I'm doing, let's make a decision. Okay, now I need to look at the road ahead and figure out our Q2 Objectives. Let me just do that. Done with that. Okay, now there's communication channels I have to tend to let me just do that. Okay, now let me move on to this next. So the sequentiality where you you think on one thing at a time until you're done and move on to the next, you do better. And there's interesting research that shows that as the inbox demands of managers go up, their leadership activities go down. And they shift into what the researchers call a productivity mindset of just I'm just keeping up with requests, which is a, a really abdicating a lot of the value managers bring. Same with support staff. So, okay, I'm now I'm executing useful tasks on behalf of the people I support. If your setup is such that you're in the hyperactive hive mind, so like I also have to manage informal back and forth conversation about all these things while I'm trying to execute, they do a worse job. They're much better following the IT model of it's a ticketing system. All the things that need to be done go into the ticketing system, And then I come into the ticketing system from another direction, choose a ticket that makes sense, work on that till it's done, update the ticket, and then go back to the system and say, what's next? There is no interaction I'm doing while I'm actually working on the thing. Uh, And so that's a big point I would have added. Whether or not you're doing sustained thought, the sequentiality, one thing, then another, then another, without context shifting in the middle of each thing, that is the best way for human brains to execute.
1: Thank you and and I just wonder on that when it comes to time outside of work, do you feel like your studies and your practice of of not context switching has helped you to have more attention to the one things you're doing outside of work as well?
2: Oh, I think people's experience of life outside of work has been completely uh, mutated by this always present digital context shifting engine, which we call our phones. Uh, we completely underestimate the impact it has on our actual experience of the world around us and the quality of our life that we're constantly context shifting. This is a second a second source of information to everything else we're doing. I, I am here with my kids, but I'm also looking at Facebook. I am watching the show, but I'm also scrolling through my text messages. I am on this hike, but I'm also looking at Instagram. That constant context shifting, it's, it creates this sort of numbing exhaustion. And you can actually lose what it feels like to actually just be present with the highs, the lows, the boredom, the excitement, then eventually the sense of peace that comes with that cognitive simplicity. We ignore, we forget what that's like, and so um, yes, that, that's a thread that goes through a lot of these books. Now, the human brain is not good at lots of different things are going on at the same time all the time. It's just not how we're evolved to function. And whether it's our phone while we're out the dinner, or our Slack while we're trying to actually write a report, it makes a negative impact on our our experience of the world.
1: So I've got two more questions. Um, Katrina asks, how can you bring someone on from using email as just a brain dumping tool? She seems to have a problem with a client who just uses an email as an opportunity to dump all of their kind of stresses and thoughts like that onto them. Um, How do you persuade someone not to use the tool in that way?
2: Well, so it's all about having a viable alternative that accomplishes things in a way that people are happy about, but doesn't require all the unscheduled messaging. So one example I give in the book that's very relevant, I think to this particular situation, uh, it was a firm in London, actually, they're a UX design firm, really having trouble with the hyperactive hive mind. So they, they overhauled everything. Um, and they introduced a new, they called it a client protocol where you actually, they would have the client sign in their contract that this is how we're gonna communicate. All right, so they were worried about this. We're going to lose all of our clients. They're very worried about it, but they were tired of the hype mind. And here's how they did it with most of their clients. There's a weekly call and you can vent, ask questions. We'll update you on everything that's happening. We'll, we'll try to assuage your fears. Um, but when the call is over, we will immediately send you written down everything we talked about and everything we committed to. You see it there and it's written down. And the next week we jump on the call again that cut out all the back and forth communication. And uh, now they were worried the clients were gonna say, no, 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 I need accessibility. But the clients didn't need accessibility, they needed clarity. And if there's no other expectation for, how do I get in touch with you and make sure you're working on things? They'll default to like, well, you better respond right away because I just had a thought. I have, no, I have no idea how to get this to you and off my mind. So I'm gonna send it to you. I'm just gonna wait until you respond because I don't wanna keep track of it myself. So you better just respond real quick. But as long as there's a clear alternative, Oh, yeah, we have this weekly call. All my concerns get written down. We have a record of it. They answer our questions. We see the commitment so we can hold it to it. Great. I don't have to worry about that. Good. That's one less thing I have to worry about. And their clients didn't leave. And it wasn't a problem from a client relation standpoint, but it was a huge win from reducing this constant back and forth pull that their clients had on them.
0: There we have it. Thank you so much for listening to the very end. Thanks to Isabel for hosting and of course to Cal for joining us. If you're not already a member of the Journey Further book club, Isabel would love to welcome you to the community. Just head to journeyfurther.com or click the link in the show notes. Next week, I'm really excited to be joined by Gav Thompson. Gav has had a super career in marketing and advertising stretching over 25 years, including being the founder of GIFGAF during the time he spent at O2. Um, It's going to be a great conversation, I'm sure. So get subscribed to the podcast and you'll be the first to hear it. See you next week.